Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we revisit each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums. We take a couple of weeks to listen back to them and then we get together to have a good old discussion. This time we're in with episode 17, which is The Basement Tapes, released in June 1975. So hi Rich, nice to see you again. Hello, Mark. Yeah, likewise. And uh, and a a kind of an apology, I suppose, to all of those people out there who've been asking when the next episode is is kind of emerging. Um, We have been (laughs) rather distracted for a whole variety of reasons, but we're glad to be able to bring this one out to you now. So, um, yeah. How are you? Anyway, you okay? I'm well, thank you, mate. Yeah. And I suppose back in 1975, you had to wait eight years for the album to come out, right? I mean, we've we beat that record. So I think people should be uh, should be grateful that we're here. Uh, exactly. Uh, as quickly as we are. Looked upon that way, this is a victory. This is, um, I'm going to apologise as well. We are mid-late May at the present moment in time, and the pollen count is very high, hence the fact that I have hay fever. Thus, I'm kind of channeling both Barry White and uh, Johnny Camp for vocal <laughs> delivery today. So, so there we go. It is also, coincidentally, the final day of the Premier League season. What do you reckon then, Mark, just before we get down into the main business of things? Do you think it is uh, a Liverpool going to do the impossible? It's a little bit like Operation Barbarossa for me. You know, whoever wins, we all lose. So I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Enigmatic answer. Right. Let's get back to, to Bob Dylan and, uh, and William Shakespeare then on, on that note. <laughs> yeah, well, as always, Rich, let's dive straight in. How, how familiar were you with this album before we started listening this time? I had heard this album several times. I wasn't massively familiar. I've really enjoyed it, I must say, listening to it these last few weeks. I think I was actually quite underwhelmed when I first heard this, though, in the late 90s. I don't think I actually owned a copy. I think that I sort of borrowed it from a friend or maybe heard it you know, around at someone's house kind of thing. And given the fact that I've got quite a punk background and quite a lo-fi background, Bizarrely, I, I kind of thought that the production was a bit off, which I, I don't recall ever kind of being into sort of hair metal bands or some or, or stuff like that. But I mean, to to kind of criticise the production, I, I'm not quite. I, I guess everyone makes a bad decision somewhere along the way, and that was a pretty bad judgment call that I made on this one. Yeah, I I, I wonder if I wonder how available it was actually. It, I mean, it wasn't in my local library, which generally, if if it wasn't there, I didn't listen to it and. I think, I seem to remember that there was like a five CD kind of set called the, I think it wasn't called, just called the Basement Tapes. It was like the Basement Tapes Complete or something like that, which was available. And I remember kind of lusting after it in record shops. But when you're kind of late teens sort of age, you're looking at that and you're thinking that's a lot of money to shell out for something that I think is is maybe... Uh, is not a surefire thing. So, so hence the fact I've kind of come back to it and I've been very, very pleasantly surprised. The good stuff I've enjoyed thoroughly and what I previously kind of wrote off as maybe not quite so strong, I've really enjoyed as well. So what about your story with it, mate? What's, what's your, your background? Well, I think I came to it a little bit earlier than you because it was probably the mid-90s when I, I picked it up. I did also come to it with the legend of it very much preceding the listening. So... As I've said before, I think from very early on in in my uh, Bob Dylan personal history, I'd I'd read Robert Shelton's book and he talks at length about this album and, you know, the the story around it in that, of course. And I always remember a quote from that, which I think came from a, a review in 1975, which was somebody saying, this is the album of 1975 and it would have been the album of 1967 as well, which when I read that, you know, my, my jaw just dropped because... At that age, would have been 17, 18, I was get very much getting into the Beatles and that whole kind of 60s culture. And uh, of course, as I've mentioned before, I was always thumbing through my copy of the, the Thousand Greatest Records of All Time, which had Sergeant Pepper sitting at the top. So how could any album be the album of 1967 that wasn't the official greatest album of all time? So I was obviously intrigued and my interest was very piqued by that. And there's something romantic, isn't there, about the story as well. The first time you hear it, you, know, you, can't, you can't deny it. Yeah. But yeah, despite that kind of big build-up, I did love the album when I first heard it. And like a lot of Bob Dylan's greatest works, I suppose I always find it hard to put my finger on what really makes it great. I mean, yes, of course, you can always say that there's, there's a lyric here or a verse there that's 
spellbinding. But I think, as I've probably said before, I'm not the sort of person who actually sits down and, and lives with the lyrics in that way. It's all about the way that the, the sums of the parts gel and, and create the feeling. And I think that's what you get on the basement tapes. And it's what drew me into it when we when I first heard it. The only other thing I would say is that when I did first hear it, I was very much coming to it as a Bob Dylan fan. And I, I didn't enjoy the fact that a third of it is by the band. But I guess, in a way, eventually, this was my way into the band. And stuff like Katie's Been Gone, which I now know wasn't from the basement at all, were the gateway to stuff like music from Big Pink. And so, yeah, that was my way into the band, I think. But certainly as a Bob Dylan fan, I enjoyed it just as this kind of strange, weird, almost lost record that, that we were we were getting a, a view into and, it, and it, it grabbed me from the start in that sense. It's really interesting, isn't it, what you say about the, I mean, we'll get onto this uh, later on about the, the fact that a lot of it wasn't actually recorded in the basement, which of course I think is an outrage and uh, certainly as a teenager, I just wanted to believe that they were just down in that basement. And I think I can't imagine any kind of aspiring sort of budding musician not being really taken by that romantic notion of let's just go hang out and, in a basement and make this, you know, all all day long, we're going to play music and uh, and record it. I mean, it, it just, I think the, the romance of that is wonderful, isn't it? And I agree. I think that, that kind of the old weird Americana that, that Grail Marcus talks about, it's there in, in buckets, isn't it, on almost all of this. And I think that's really quite interesting because it's you can hear the roots, like you say, of the, the Big Pink and certainly the, the second album, The Band, The Band, on this, that kind of old style Americana almost that's on it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think as well that it works it's sort of tent a sort of a testament really to to how it's been put together that it kind of works as this cohesive project whereas you say it wasn't all done in this particular order so i mean it's it's been some there's, there's some quite clever kind of background stuff gone on in the in the production of this to make it sound like a like a kind of fully considered thing i suppose yes absolutely well let's get into that shall we so just diving into the background in a very general sense of course, this came out in 1975, but as we've been saying, it was largely recorded in 1967. So the background's very well known. Bob Dylan and the band had been on the world tour. Dylan had had his motorcycle accident and he disappeared from view. As we talked about when we, we uh, covered John Wesley Harding, and it was only much later that people realised all this creativity had been going on. So they were living in Woodstock. We're talking about Bob Dylan and the band, but of course, Levon Helm had had left the band at the end of 65 and he wasn't present at these recordings. I think he does pop up in some of the unreleased recordings right at the very end, but um, certainly he's not on the cuts that were used for this album in the, uh, in the original versions, although he does appear uh, <laughs> through overdubs, of course, and we'll, we'll get to that. But yeah, so it was, it was those four musicians and Bob Dylan, and they were recording first at Bob Dylan's house and then later at uh, Big Pink, wasn't it, in the garage, which was nicknamed The Basement, for reasons which I'm not 100% clear on. Yeah, I mean, it, I've never been to the house. I'm not, I'm not even sure if it's kind of turned into a museum now or if it's still like on the, on the market kind of thing. But yeah, in my head, it was always literally a basement that they kind of went down into every day and did their recordings. But I don't, I don't think that that was the case. It sounds much more poetic doesn't it than saying oh yeah we just pop next door into the garage kind of thing but um it, it is interesting isn't it that that levin wasn't there because he was like wasn't he in an oil rig or something in the gulf of mexico or so the story goes he kind of i think he'd had enough of the road with the constant booing that they'd had and that kind of quite antagonistic attitude but i think the remnants of the band though had gone back out on the road in the kind of intervening period they were like they were backing people like Tiny Tim, who like had the, he was that ukulele player, wasn't he? He was kind of like a, was he American? Was he British? Sort I of like, he was, I thought he was British. I could be wrong. He, he sort of descendant of George Formby kind of thing. In <laughs> songs like Tiptoe Through the Tulips or whatever. So they'd been out doing that, which is, which I find amazing. So there they are at the absolute kind of coalface of rock and roll history, the cutting edge at a time when there was no one cooler, really. They did that tour, and then they're back in the, in the pubs and the clubs kind of thing, doing this. I mean, it's like, I don't know, we, we use bad footballing analogies, so why not just hit another one up and see what happens? But <laughs> I imagine them almost like a, a whole bunch of 
Peter Taylor's waiting for the call from Clough kind of thing. It's like, right, come on, come on back into the fray. Let's do some recording or, or like, like, <laughs> like McLaren endlessly waiting to go back to that kind of assistant manager job at kind of Man United. It's that kind of thing. They're, they're waiting in the wings kind of thing. And it just amazes me, the idea that, that they were, they, they'd done all of this kind of historical stuff. And then all of a sudden they're just doing like a, almost like a regular day job. And then suddenly they're back into this creative, an astonishing kind of creative atmosphere. Well, I've got a better analogy for you, Rich. I'm, I'm going out on a limb and saying it's better anyway. It's like a, a young, promising starlet being uh, thrown into a European tie in the first team for his debut. Classical style is that you're not told until an hour before kickoff what you're playing and all of a sudden you're running out of a burnabout. But then the next week, the wise old manager knows what he's doing. He puts you back in the reserves. and uh, Or out, out on loan at Leighton Orient. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, but in all seriousness, there's something in that, isn't there? Because I forget who it was who, who I'd been reading that said this, but the whole thing about the basement tapes is that it's not something special. It's a bunch of people who are just sort of coming back, doing what they do and getting together and hanging out and playing. And OK, they're recording it this time as well. But, you know, it's that it's not a self-consciously, I don't know what the word would be, but it's not, it's not about five superstars getting together and deciding, right, now we're going to show the world what we're doing. And I think by the end of it, perhaps it had evolved into that because they just knew the quality of what they were doing was so great. But it evolved from that sitting around, we're going to play these songs, we're going to see what we sound like together. And a lot of its charm does come from I totally agree. And I think it's one of those things as well where had they been a bunch of kind of superstars, if they'd been different people other than the band in that environment, they wouldn't have come out with anything quite so special. Because we mentioned a few episodes back that the band were very much they weren't a jam band it was about the songs it was about the arrangements and they would kind of play things over until they had something that worked whereas if you'd have had your kind of guitar shredding um sort of luminaries of the time then that's what would have happened wouldn't it? i mean you imagine you've had like apple suckling tree with like a 20 minute guitar solo kind of thing <laughs> it just wouldn't have worked would it it wouldn't have had that kind of homespun, almost sort of Steinbeck-esque kind of feel that kind of permeates everything on this. And I think that that, that yeah, you're right. As, as the sessions progressed, I think they realised how special what they had was. But I mean, it's quite unpretentious, I think, because it's quite silly. And that's one of the things I love about so much of it. So we're going to get into the, the arrangements and the individual songs a bit later, of course. But I guess just to sort of move the story along a little bit because we have to be quite clear don't we that we're not talking in this podcast about the basement tapes as this kind of happening this sort of um event that spread over months and months and, and encompasses hundreds of recordings although obviously we'll, we'll touch on that we're talking about this record that, that was released in 1975 with the 24 songs and that's a very different beast isn't it but the link between the two is interesting in itself because of course these tracks or some of these tracks became uh, very famous as, as possibly the first rock and roll bootleg, didn't they? Absolutely, yes. And as that, I mean, it kind of almost, it spawned many imitators, didn't it really? But this this idea of, of the album being bootlegged, I mean, I, I guess that hadn't really, yeah, like you say, it hadn't really, it hadn't happened in rock and roll, had it? To my knowledge. I mean, I think that there were, records that preceded it that was sort of subsequently bootlegged and then put out when people saw what happened with this one but I think this kind of it broke the mold a little bit didn't it in terms of bootlegs really yeah I think that's right and I think that was 1969 wasn't it when the uh the great white wonder came out which had a few other older Bob Dylan songs on it as well as some of the songs from the basement but of course prior to that some of these songs had already seen the light of day as, as cover versions. And that's the thing, isn't it? We always have to remember, we've, we've said a few times uh, on this podcast already that we, we tend to come at these things from the point of view of trying to assess the artistic development or, the, you know, to come at it as fans enjoying the music, but always kind of lurking in the background is the commercial imperative. And that was certainly alive here, wasn't it? Because Bob Dylan hadn't put a record out in 1967 until the very end. He was sitting on all these songs and, and Albert Grossman was, was quite keen to, to monetize them in some way. So there was a demo uh, LP with 14 of these songs on it, which was put together and, and hawked around, basically. No, no pun intended. <laughs> and um, yeah, you know, that's how, that's how these songs saw the light of day. So we obviously, the birds famously covered it. 
Um, who was it who covered Quim the Eskimo? Who had a big hit in the UK. Oh, it was uh, Manfred Mann, wasn't it? That yeah. had like yeah, a, yeah. a colossal hit, yeah, with that. And the band themselves, of course, did a couple of songs, didn't they, on uh, music from Big Pink? So it was clear that something had happened and these songs were were around. But it was then that bootleg, wasn't it, that, that really sort of put it into the hands of the masses, as it were. Yes, indeed. And you're right about the commercial imperative because, yeah, they, they wanted to they wanted people to cover those songs because they wanted to generate money from that, really, didn't they? And, yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think we'll get into that in a little bit more. I think one of the things that is worth just flagging up, of course, is the fact that we call this podcast Bob Dylan American Shakespeare. We are well aware that we've made some tenuous, I suppose, would be the uh, the, the word um, links between some of Bob Dylan's output and um, and Shakespeare. Um, I think this, well, I know for a fact that this album works a lot better, and we're going to have to credit Andrew Muir here, who is the writer of the True Performing of It. We kind of lean on him pretty heavily at the best of times really and you know he he seems to tolerate that in good humor so thank you very much indeed Andrew but he outlines some of the many many links between this album or I should say the the basement tapes in general and King Lear by Shakespeare one of which before again to we'll delve into songs in in a little bit but this idea of of kind of nothingness and emptiness and life being very brief is kind of a, a pretty recurrent theme here. And one of the things that Andrew Muir talks about is how this is kind of fundamental when it comes to Shakespeare's play, King Lear. Not only that, but he also, uh, Bob Dylan himself, has, has pretty much acknowledged the fact that there's a lot of King Lear in this particular album. And I think one of the interesting things about this, yes, you see it on individual songs, you see the word nothing kind of flash up time and time again. And of course, you've got that very, very famous section in King Lear in the first scene of the first act, actually, where the word nothing, Cordelia and King Lear are speaking to each other. And it's just like a back and forth. Nothing, my Lord, nothing, 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 etc. And and, and Dylan himself has kind of acknowledged, like I said, the the influence of this. And I think we can almost make some parallels also between the way that this album came to light and some of Shakespeare's kind of production of plays, etc. I'm going to hand back over to you at this point, though, mate, before I just go on some diatribe of, of, of kind of uh, Elizabethan stuff. So, um, yeah, back to you, Mr. Walsh, with a hospital pass of the finest order. No, I mean, I think the calling card of this podcast is that you come to talk about Bob Dylan, but you you stay for the Elizabethan rants. So we're, we're totally on board with that. It strikes me, though, um, one of the things that, that comes across from people who've spent a lot more time listening to the complete basement tapes in, in as, as, as close to sequence as it's possible to reconstruct, um, given what we know and what we've got available, is that there is this very clear transition, isn't there, from, from you know, goofing around to something more serious. And, and one of the, the key points in that transition according to um, Sid Griffin, I think, who wrote Million Dollar Bash, which is a tremendous book for anyone who hasn't come across it, was uh, Sign on the Cross, um, which obviously isn't on the record, so we're already cheating by talking about it. But for him, he thinks of this as being the first time that Dylan's really very explicitly engaging, semi-publicly, if you like, or let's say in song, with his relationship with Christianity and the the, the kind of the, the the part of his art which is rooted in that long tradition, and I think that's that's true, and I think it, it it's something that then percolates through the rest of the basement tapes, and you've got the very clear stuff that survives even on the, the record as it was issued in 1975, which is like this kind of uh, quite dark apocalyptic undertone that this voice is sort of rumbling away in the background of those Dylan songs in particular, but it's also a quite a conscious rejection in an artistic sense of the gaudiness and the flashiness of the, the psychedelic era. And it sits in absolute philosophical counterpoint to the, the spirit of the age, doesn't it? This um, age of Aquarius, cosmic giggle, uh, you know, listen to the void sort of stuff. And <laughs> this, is not, this is not where he's coming from with these sorts of lyrics at all. So I think you're absolutely right. And that, that, that kind of engagement with, um, I don't know, almost um, existentialism, I suppose, is is really, really striking. And it, it moves us on from where we were in Bond on Blonde in a, in a very real way. And it's the bridge to John Wesley Harding, I would say for sure. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it is, isn't it? It's about as far 
sort of geographically, philosophically, et cetera, et cetera, from kind of the summer of, of love in San Francisco as it's possible to be, this kind of backwards sort of Woodstock existence. I mean, I think going back to the kind of Shakespeare angle, one of the other links in terms of how it came to light, you've mentioned the Great White Wonder, you've mentioned the fact that there's all of this mystery surrounding it. People were aware of it. They were aware of the legend of the basement, but they they didn't really know uh, these songs were just kind of being leaked out as little gems here and there. And I think we can, we can maybe make a little bit of a link there with, with the Shakespearean output, because of course there's so many plays that Shakespeare has produced where people are not actually sure if it was, was it actually him? Was it written in conjunction with someone else? Was there collaboration? And I, I think we get a lot of this on the basement tapes as well, don't we? Because, of course, yes, ostensibly we've got Bob Dylan. But, of course, in addition to that, we've got the band's input. Some of them are much more band-heavy than others. Some of them Bob Dylan seems to be entirely absent from and possibly the kind of creative process of them as well. To name but a few, and again, these have kind of gone into the annals of time now, but you've got things like Arden of Faversham and Edmund Ironside and uh, the London Prodigal and the, even the Spanish Tragedy. Plays like this that were, that were a big deal in the age, people don't really know. There have been historians and kind of literary historians who've suggested that Shakespeare had involvement with this um, or with their output, but in much the same way as the basement tapes, no one really knows. It's not like there's some giant pie chart somewhere on kind of vellum or something like that <laughs> where people said, oh no, this is this is Shakespeare's input here and this is whoever else was involved with it. And it's it's the same with the uh, with the basement takes. You probably could produce some kind of pie chart, but you probably wouldn't use vellum for it. So there we go. That's the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, you're right. And And one of the aspects in which you get that kind of parallel is in the arrangements and the musicianship. I mean, we can have the arguments about whether it was uh, Robbie or Richard who was playing drums on a particular track because we just don't know. And you're right as well that you've got the very clear influence of Bob Dylan as the, the creative driving force for a lot of this stuff. But you've got Hudson as well. You know, he's yeah. the way that he's setting things up, the way that he's allowing this to be captured, he's, his fingerprints are all over it. And of course, um, Rick and Richard, you know, the, what they are bringing to the party is, is, is immense, isn't it? It's, it's this real collaborative effort between the five of them. But more than that, you've also got these, these influences that are almost trailing back behind them. We've talked about the, the influence of the kind of Christian language that comes in, the old American folk music as well. And, and, and kind of also, I suppose, the... The early rock and roll and the pre-rock and roll popular music that's 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 being picked up on and very explicitly in the sort of the cover versions they were doing to start with but then also feeding into that feeling that they're generating so i suppose in the same way as you're talking about you know we're never quite sure to what extent it's it's shakespeare it's somebody else it's a collaboration you got this great kind of weight of influence that's bearing down on these people merging with their own creativity getting mixed together in this incredible melting pot and then <laughs> surging towards us in this quite unbelievable and unique product that we end up with whether we're talking about the complete basement tapes or the record that we eventually get and that will will come to at some point but either way you're right it's that same kind of weight that really drives it home to the listener yeah. <clears throat> i agree and i think it's it's a lot a lot of this kind of to use that word weight but it gives weight again to this kind of idea of a body of work and it almost makes it i know there are those people who've who've been quite surprised that bob dylan has kind of chosen to go down the kind of want of better the swing kind of lounge music uh, aspect later in his career and that he's dipped and sort of dabbled with all sorts of different styles i mean you look at the basement tapes it really shouldn't come as that much of a surprise that he's been as, as, as kind of, that he's, he spans so many different genres and styles, really. And of course, I suppose, and again, this is kind of going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but that so many of these songs became known through cover versions prior to being released kind of officially or sort of semi-officially on the, as the basement tapes. It means that we're kind of viewing them through the filter of how other people have kind of changed them doctored them, switched bits and pieces around. And I think, again, that's kind of a, a bit of a link that we can have with the immortal bard once again, because, of course, this is the kind of thing that the, 
Victorians were doing, that subsequent uh, generations after the Elizabethans certainly did. They had the first folio, for example, of Shakespeare's plays, but even those were at someone else's kind of discretion. It was like, oh no, we'll take that scene out, we'll shove that one in there. And so you've got people, two people in Bob Dylan and um, and Shakespeare who whose work has been changed quite not fundamentally but it's been changed significantly and altered significantly and so I suppose we sort of wonder what was what was the original thing that we were kind of listening to or, or, or being privy to in the first place. That's a nice segue actually into the release of the record itself in, in June 1975 because things were very different. This, this album that we got in 1975 was not a a, 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 an attempt at an accurate reproduction of, of what we'd, we'd had in 1967 by any means. So probably worth just going over the story of that a little bit before we dive into the individual tracks. So by 1975, I suppose you could say that the band's career had already peaked and was well and truly on the way down. And we had Northern Lights and Southern Cross coming up at the end of the year, which is a tremendous record for my money. But that moment when they had really been riding the zeitgeist had, had well and truly passed. But on the other hand, they were a very wealthy and very well-established rock band. And they bought another house, uh, this time in Malibu, called Shangri-La, um, <laughs> where they did record uh, Northern Lights and Southern Cross, I think. But in the meantime, uh, that was the location for them working on the tapes from 1967. There's, there's a few reasons that have been put forward as to why these this, this album came about. Um, Clinton <laughs> oh, yeah, Halen... That's, that's uh, safety I'm blaming again. <laughs> Carry on, mate. You're not just incredibly dubious about my, uh, my, my, my comments and letting me know in a subtle fashion. Um, yeah, so, so Clinton Halen, in his inimitable way, thinks that once Bob Dylan had released Blood on the Tracks, he felt sufficiently liberated from the shadow of this incredible collection of songs that had hitherto been, been hidden that he, he felt comfortable releasing them. Who knows? That could be true. It seems as likely, at least, that kind of a resolution of his wranglings with Grossman played a part. And I guess for the band as well, there was very much a sense that they wanted to get this out and they wanted to, to I suppose, embellish the extent of their involvement in this, which is why further tracks were added, I think, to the finished product. And when I say that, I don't mean that in a, in a mean-spirited way, because, of course, the contribution of Robertson, Manuel Danko and Hudson to these, the tracks from 1967 is immense. But where I'm coming from is they wanted the band as a unit to be front and center in the release. So the, the extra tracks were added. And so we do get these quite weird things really, where quite key songs on the album, uh, as it stands, like Ain't No More Kane and Bessie Smith uh, were, were recorded in 1975. So had absolutely nothing to do with the basement. And the real telltale sign is that we get Levon singing on uh, Don't You Tell Henry, when of course he wasn't in the basement. So that was a clue for everybody right there. Um, but also, of course, stuff like Katie's Been Gone, uh, Long Distance Operator. These things were probably outtakes from music from Big Pink or perhaps even a little bit later rather than proper basement recordings, as, as, as a, a more fundamentalist fan might might define it. Also, there was a lot of overdubbing going on. So again, Levon overdubbed his parts, of course. Fair bit of singing, fair bit of playing. And of course, the tapes were cleaned, which was necessary to, to get anything that, that, that could be released. So we end up with a 24-track record, which has eight tracks, which are really band tracks, um, 16, which are Bob Dylan from the basement. But even there, we've got some uh, quite striking selections, haven't we? We don't have I Shall Be Released, The Mighty Quinn, which have already been big hits. And we don't have stuff like uh, I'm Not There or um, Sign on the Cross, which contributed to the chagrin of Dylanologists for decades to come. So quite a... I don't know, quite a curate seg of an album, I would say, Rich. What, what are your thoughts? I think, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And the sort of you know, 15, 16-year-old listener inside me still wants to believe that they were all just done in the basement, you know, while they were kind of popping up to have a beer and a barbecue kind of thing. But, um, but I suppose the other thing is, we're talking 1975. I mean, 1975, where is music in 1975? Well, we've talked in previous episodes about how much music has kind of moved on i mean 1975 
funk music, um, pop music that is honed to within an inch of its life, things like the Carpenters, for example, etc. You've got disco music, etc., etc. Production values are so high, and producers have become so good at what they do by this point in time. I can understand. I don't think that Robertson and Co were doing the wrong thing to try and make it more palatable. And I, I get that. And and I don't think if you'd have just had what effectively would have just been a few microphones into a tape machine, I don't think it would have cut it. It would have just forever sounded like a bootleg, whereas this sounds like something that people will, will want to play, really. As an aside, I love that idea of them going to Malibu, though, and buying um, a house or renting a house together. I always think it's a sort of antithesis. You know, when... Um, is it in um, Hard Day's Night when the Beatles, they all go into that those separate kind of front doors <laughs> of this house and, yeah. they go in there and they're sort of sitting around reading comics and drinking milk. And I just don't imagine the, the band at the total other end of the spectrum where you've got, you know, they're drinking hard liquor and there's fast women, etc., that are hanging around with them and, and they're getting up to the, all those kind of things that, uh, of course, they were getting up to. But it's just, it, it sort of pulls apart, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the the sort of messing around with the track order and the overdubbing and all of those things, um, for want of a better word, I, I think I can understand why that happened. And I mean, from the band's point of view, I think, yeah, a high watermark, the, uh, the last waltz notwithstanding, I think they probably had their high watermark. I think they wanted to monetize their involvement with Dylan as best as they possibly could. And at risk of kind of flogging this kind of King Lear Shakespeare link um, a little bit too much, I think it's important that we just remember that, of course, Shakespeare had no direct involvement with the publishing of his, his plays, much like Bob Dylan doesn't seem to, in this case, have had a great deal of say about what was leaked to who or when or anything along those kind of lines. And so there were always fears about bootlegging and copying. And a lot of the time, people just they, they just kind of rewrote the plays as best as they could remember. And so the idea that there's ever a definitive version of anything is probably a little bit silly anyway. But I think certainly when it comes to the idea of what would the definitive version of the basement tape music have been, it might not have been that great to listen to. I, I, mean, I mean, it sounds really heretical to say it, but you imagine if they were just, without the cleaning up of the, the, the sounds, without the overdubs, etc. I think what we've been given is just something that's a lot more palatable to, to our kind of listening sensibilities, really, um, for, for better or for worse, purist otherwise. Yeah. Well, there is an interesting argument that says that actually Garth Hudson's recordings, as originally done, were a lot stronger than you would think. And that what's happened is for the intervening butchery, I suppose, applied by the bootleggers in, in doing what they do to get it out there, muddied things. Well, <laughs> quite literally muddied, muddied the sound. And I don't know. I don't know the extent to which that's true. But I suppose the, the complete basement tapes we, we got a few years ago with the very enhanced sound quality gives us some sense of, of what we would have been listening to. Although, obviously, that's with all the benefit of 21st century techniques applied to it. So, yeah, I, I take your point. There's no doubt that they wanted to produce something that was going to be commercial and that was going to get played and was going to sell. And I think they, I think they did a good job, frankly. It's just, it does make it such a strange album. And we've already name-checked um, the old weird America. And weird is the word, isn't it? The, the content of the, the songs is strange. The way in which the album came about, the way it was recorded, the way it was released is strange. But also... There's something about where it sits in Bob Dylan's career that's strange as well, because it was really striking to me doing this podcast, the way we're doing it, that this is obviously nothing to do with blood on the tracks. That very clearly, it's something from the past. It's not really anything to do with Blonde on Blonde, though, either, is it? It doesn't feel like the follow-up to that in any way. So where does it come from? It's got the links to John Wesley Harding, but again, even that's odd, because we know that Bob Dylan very consciously rejected all of this stuff and just went away and wrote a whole bunch of new songs to record uh, in Nashville. So all in all, everything about this album is weird. That's for the word to describe it, I think. But weird in a very, very positive way. And I'm glad we do have what we have. And I'm even more glad that we now have the complete basement tapes that we can go back to and, and listen to to our heart's content. But there's something about this which is just absolutely unique for all sorts of reasons beyond the quality of the songs, which which would be enough in itself. Yeah, I think 
I mean, it is, it's a mishmash, isn't it? And um, in in the way that self portrait was a mishmash, this is like a mishmash that is just is good. <laughs> Which, you know, I think it, I think it's great. I think it gets into that kind of heart of that old weird America, and I mean, if we think that it is a very there's a lot of real darkness on this. There's a lot of depressing stuff. Hence why I agree so wholeheartedly with what Andrew Muir says about the links with King Lear, which is a bloody dark and depressing play. Even the Elizabethans, you know, and they used to burn witches, you know, you know <laughs> even they found it um, pretty depressing, you know. But I think that you look at the history of folk music, you look at the history of, you know, you go through the um, Harry Smith folk anthology and stuff like that, there's murder ballads left, right and centre. That's kind of the, that darkness is there. But I also think that there is an enormous amount of clowning and humour on this as well. And I think that kind of ties in again with the, the sort of Shakespearean angle. You had the fool, the figure of the fool. You have the fool in King Lear, for example. Um, you had the fool in many Shakespearean plays, that kind of clowning um, making light of stuff and there's almost something there's there's so much on this which is very old-fashioned but I think as well there's so much on this that is very contemporary or very contemporary to 1967 it's almost like no no examples here spring to mind so I might be writing checks I can't cash here but um, it's just this idea of you know how you used to get kind of pamphleteers who would kind of send up satirically um, politicians of the time and current affairs and stuff like that but do so in a in a quite kind of twee or clownish sort of fashion i think there's aspects of that on this this kind of group of songs as well i think i think it's there's so much going on here um you can't just say that this is dark and depressing you can't just say that it's clowning you can't just say that it's kind of backwards sort of folk music or whatever because it's it's not it's all of those things but so much more as well it's funny isn't it it really is and that's one of the things I think it was Robbie who said that when Dylan would turn up at the house around noon and sit at his typewriter, the, the bizarre thing was that he would produce a couple of great songs, but they'd also be funny. And we spoke before about the humour going missing from Dylan throughout the period that follows. Yeah. I think if we said Dylan from John Wesley Harding, really, but it sort of it, it vanishes and perhaps just starts to reappear in a very bitter and ironic way on, on Blood on the Tracks. But it's here in this collection of songs, for sure. Um, and I liked what you said about the uh, satirical side of it too, because there's one song in particular, which uh, I, just cracks me up every single time and, and plays very directly to that, which is Clothesline Saga. I mean, it's just incredibly deadpan, incredibly funny. But what I didn't realise until I read Sid Griffin on it was that the vice president at the time was, 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 it, was it Hubert Humphrey? Herbert Humphrey? I forget. Was, that, was he Johnson's vice president? Yeah, Johnson's yeah. vice president. Um, and um, yeah, Hubert Humphrey. And he and he had he had betrayed the liberal establishment by being having been a very strong proponent of civil rights. He he took on the job as Johnson's vice president on the understanding that he would keep his mouth shut and not alienate any more of the Southern Democrats in the electoral coalition. So this whole thing about the vice president going mad. And no one been able to find his, his head, uh, Griffin thinks anyway, is, is relating to, uh, to Humphrey, which it may well be. But either way, it's, a, it's just a tremendously funny song uh, from start to finish. And I think that, that that idea, that warmth that comes through there and that humour is it's the result of Bob Dylan writing for a few of his mates who is playing within the basement or the garage, however we want to term it. But that... I think is, is really important because that's kind of what musicians do. It's what bands do. It's what kind of groups of friends do when they're hanging around. You're not thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to write this joke or I'm going to write this particular song or whatever it may be for a huge audience. I'm just thinking about the people I'm going to present it to in the room. And I think that that's where a lot of the warmth comes from, um, from, from, from this really and in, in so many of the songs. And I mean, that's probably a good moment to start thinking about actually moving on to dipping into some of these songs in a little bit more detail. I mean, a little bit of background here as well. What we did uh, for the benefit of listeners is we kind of 
tried to divide up the original 24 songs into kind of two. It was 24 into two groups, 12 or something like that. I forget now. My maths has never been my strong point, Mark, as you will. Uh, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much to all of those people who uh, responded to the kind of Twitter straw poll that we put online about this. What we realized, the kind of conclusions that we drew, is that no one out there can agree what the best songs are on this. Because some of you thought exactly the same as, as I did or exactly the same as Mark did. Most people, though, loved some of the songs and it, there was just no pattern whatsoever, which I think is is perfect, isn't it, mate? It, this, this completely sums up what this album is, really. It's kind of all things to all people. Yeah, absolutely. I was a little bit worried when we started talking about it because we did have pretty much exactly the same list, didn't we? Give or take a couple we of We did originally, tracks. yeah, 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 yeah. And then we then we started to actually kind of discussing it with each other and realised that we didn't really think the same anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, it does say something about the strength of, this, of, the, of the record, doesn't it? And, and the importance of having it as this double album that we do have. I mean, funnily enough, one of the reasons why it was a double album and not a triple album, I suppose, is that you were looking at things like the cost of putting out a triple album in those days. And also I think that's the, you know, the kind of the technical side of trying to jam as many songs as you can onto a, onto a, a vinyl record uh, was a limiting factor too, wasn't it? Yeah. Still some bizarre choices in terms of what they, they left off, but there's plenty on there in what they did include to, to lead to these sorts of conversations going on and on in circles forever, as we've established on Twitter. Absolutely. What are we going to kick off with then, mate? We got any? You got any preferences? Well, I think we could just kick off with some of the band songs. So as we've already said, I think most of them are not strictly basement songs. But I've always been very enamoured with Katie's Been Gone, as I mentioned before. That I think in the liner notes to the record, actually, it says something like, it's the kind of love song that only Richard Manuel could have written. But absolutely right. Um, and as I say, it was a gateway for me to the rest of the band's music through Richard, really, I suppose. So I'm always, always very grateful to this song for that. I feel much the same way about Bessie Smith. So it's kind of a, a sister song in a way, I suppose. Yeah. And then, of course, Ain't No More Kane. I mean, you've got a lot more to say about that. That was a, a re-recording in 1975, wasn't it? So it's got no place on this record in a way. But my goodness, we are glad it's on there, aren't we? Well, I mean, for me, I think that almost sums up the basement tapes more than any other song, really. Ain't they more Kane? I mean, I think that that is almost like a blueprint for what sort of subsequently went on to be known as Americana, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, it's like an old sort of, I guess, Southern prison song. It's the kind of thing that um, Alan Lomax would have recorded, isn't it, actually? Um, but they're... You look at what they've done on that. I mean, the harmonies are just gorgeous. It's an acoustic arrangement. Garth Hudson, once again is kind of musically head and shoulders above everyone else. I think it's it's the accordion, isn't it, on that? And, I mean, you mentioned um, Bessie Smith earlier. His organ playing, I think it's the organ, it's kind of like that Wurlitzer-like sound on that. It's just sublime, isn't it? And so, yeah, I mean, I think that this has spawned so many... Imitators probably sounds a little bit unfair, but I think it's influenced so many people. I mean, you can hear the the Jayhawks here. You can hear all of that kind of alt country movement, um, and and for all the right reasons as well. I mean, it's it's kind of you've got the harmonies, you've got the backwards kind of sensibilities, and you've got that. I suppose that the problematic thing here is that that idea that was always been levelled at those kind of bands is this idea of authenticity. And and, and the the truth of the matter is, I think that. Ain't No More Kane sounds incredibly authentic. But I mean, if it was indeed recorded by a batch of guys in a high-end studio in Los Angeles, in Malibu, it just goes to show it doesn't matter, does it? It could have been recorded in the basement. I mean, not everyone has to be a, a sort of tattooed hard man that's done serious time to be able to sing a song about yearning or lost love or kind of like the world being a difficult place. It's, that's not how music works, is it? It's all about personas and I think that that's so important because we've talked so much about the masks that Dylan has worn throughout his career we've talked so much about the different personas that he's had and I think the band here have invented essentially a persona for themselves really which which has endured I think that's how people want to remember the band they remember them like that they don't remember them as the washed up old very tragic alcoholic figures that so many of them became it's it's this kind of moment isn't it that they're kind of fixed in time and I think that's what makes this such a magical kind of 
collection of songs because it's it serves as a testament doesn't it it does and a couple of things to pick up on there i think i mean yes the the playing from garth on so many of these songs is is astonishing isn't it and i always think with with keyboards from this era or i suppose we're talking about 67 rather than 75 you know you, you always you always worry that you, you're not quite getting them in the mix don't you particularly when you've got that full band sound and when you do get them like on like a rolling stone it's when they're really pushed front and center yeah but it's that kind of the contextualizing tones that he gets on this are so gorgeous and you it, it it shows what a talent he is but also speaks to the way that thing was developing so organically it's such a beautiful thing to listen to yeah but yeah i i agree with that and the other thing that is we were talking about ain't no more came i feel that that song is quite closely related to one of the tracks they had uh, later in the year on uh, northern light southern cross where katie and driftwood which also has the kind of sharing of the vocals yeah. um uh, and again there's no suggestion that any members of, of the band were uh, refugees kicked out after the english french war in canada but it, it nevertheless works no i mean i know um, the role but they weren't too <laughs> whatever it is at the time you know? <laughs> yeah so yeah i i think that's absolutely right and i'm glad i am glad that we have this album in that way so i'm not in the camp of of worrying very much about the the authenticity of the performers or the record as a as a, as a capturing of what went on in the basement. I'm glad we have got what we've got. Does that pretty much do us for the, the band tracks, Rich? Or is there something else you wanted to talk I, about? I think it probably does. I think what you just said there, though, is 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 just a good time, as, as good a time as any to kind of just remind people that we come at this from being fans and um, and far be it from us to sort of question the authenticity of any of these things. We may well make mistakes with the details and we apologise in advance for that. But, I mean, ultimately... I'm sure you'll agree with me here, Mark, is that neither of us could uh, come close to playing as well as these guys did in the basement. So I think the idea that criticise what they've done is, is not really where we're coming from here. It's, it is. It's a thing of beauty, isn't it? It's, it's great. Okay, then. Uh, what, where to next uh, in, terms of, in terms of songs? What are you thinking? Well, I think if I'm going to pick again, I'll, I'll go with Tears of Rage. So from the first time I heard this record standout track, I think that's obviously an arguable thing to say, but for me, it would still remain that. And I just love the fact that we have the gorgeous version on music from Big Pink, but I'd take this one. I really would. I'd take this one over that. The thing, I know you've got more to say about this, but the thing that really gets me about this song, again, is the idea that we're in 1967. We've got um, the man who wrote The Times We Are Changing. And yet it's this beautiful evocation of the the weight and the pain of parenthood i think you couldn't really be very far removed from the spirit of 1967 in in expressing those sentiments in the way that he does on this track but even as a as a you know a a snotty nosed teenager it was affecting and now as a as a parent it's uh it's, it's incredibly touching and it did make me think, actually, that the other song from 1967 that does that so well is, is She's Leaving Home, coming from a completely different angle. Yeah. But uh, having that same kind of ability to transport you outside of the, uh, the, the sympathy with the, the teenager, the child, the rebel, and just, just taking that, that panoramic step back to look at the wider implications. And it's a mark of sheer unparalleled songwriting genius and we're talking about McCartney and we're talking about Bob Dylan so we shouldn't be surprised but <laughs> no, <it's... laughs> that's where we are yeah I mean I agree it's gorgeous isn't it the I mean one of the things this one sort of blurs the boundaries between Ecclesiastes and uh and and, and King Lear really so you've got I mean the line oh what dear daughter neath the sun would treat a father so to wait upon him and foot and always tell him no. And Bob Dylan, in a, it was a Rolling Stone interview, and I forget which year, but he effectively says, yes, I, I, I was thinking of, of King Lear at the time. I mean, this idea of, um, of the, the fact that you've got nothing mentioned again, um, the, the kind of emptiness of existence, the kind of difficulty of life, et cetera, et cetera, it comes through really strongly on this. And in much the same way as She's Leaving Home does it, it's, this is so much sort of bigger and more than just what is still a fairly young man singing of the, the, the sort of woes of the world. It's, it's, 
is pretty spellbinding, isn't it, really? The other thing about Tears of Rage is uh, it was a co-write, in a way, with uh, Richard Manuel, wasn't it? He wrote the melody and the lyrics are right. Dylan's. I, mean, a, I know you've got some thoughts about the themes that tie Bob Dylan songs together, Rich, haven't you? Um, is there anything in particular you wanted to, to flag just before we get into some of them? Well, I think it's just this idea of the, the emptiness of existence, the King Lear link really here. Um, we've got nothing mentioned quite a few times. You ain't going nowhere. We've got the negativity. We've got nothing was delivered, for example. And of course, the mentions of nothing in, um, in This Wheel's on Fire as well. So, um, and indeed, too much of nothing, of course. Okay, so it, it's a definite kind of theme. And I know you can kind of shape whatever interpretation you want to to sort of fit this but there's definitely something there isn't there um and it, it just strengthens this idea of the the kind of the, the the king lear kind of uh comparison i suppose with this with this set of songs i always thought it was quite funny the the song um too much of nothing because on the one hand you could sort of relate to it you've got this guy who had been at the cutting edge of popular culture for so long that all of a sudden living in semi-retirement i suppose perhaps feeling that he had too much of nothing going on. But at the same time, of course, that's so totally not what was going on for him. He was writing all these songs at an incredible pace. But perhaps compared to where he had been a year earlier, it was still too much of nothing, I I wonder. But yeah, I I think there's so many songs on this record which are instant Bob Dylan classics. And it's, it's one of those things, again, just like London Blonde and just like Blood on the Tracks, you're, you're in a space where if you picked anybody else in the world, pretty much, and said, well, they would have written half a dozen of these songs, you'd say, okay, great. They've secured their place in the pantheon for all time. <laughs> um, but for Bob Dylan, it's almost like something he just did and then he moved on to the next thing. Yeah, and and another day at the office or another day at the basement <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And while we're on the subject, I think a song that I think does play into that theme that you've just highlighted is going to Acapulco and I think that also links in with my choice of Tears of Rage because for me it's a song that has that same sense of weight in it somehow and I don't know what it is that gives it that weight in a way I mean obviously quite dense something vaguely disconcerting rumbling underneath it but also something about the performance and the arrangement that really gives it something even more intense than the other songs on the record. Yeah, I think I think I agree with that. I mean, you've got like the it's a wicked life, but what the hell? Everybody's got to eat. I mean, there is there's a darkness there, isn't there? And then of course you've got the there's 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 a lot of punning in this. There's a lot of innuendo. I mean, you've got the kind of Shakespearean sort of aspect, the bawdy humour, I suppose, with the uh, um, now every time you know when the well breaks down, I just go pump on it. So <laughs> Rosemary, you know, you can take a a genius to kind of figure out what he's potentially getting at there. But I mean, I think it's an interesting kind of balance, isn't it? It's that you've got this intense kind of disconcerting darkness and then you've got this quite raucous, bawdy humour, really, I suppose, which which kind of underpins it, which, yeah. And all delivered in a really heartfelt style, though, which kind of wrong foots you, really. I mean, you can listen to that in many, many different ways. And it's it's been interesting listening to it now at the age I am, rather than as a sort of impressionable teenager, you see there's so many layers of meaning on so many of the songs in this, aren't there? There's so much complexity, which I don't think, I well, I know for a fact I didn't get on first listen. And we need to sound the klaxon at this point, because I'm going to say that the vocal on going to Acapulco is outstanding. It is heartfelt, as you say. But I don't know what other songs I'd pick. There's so, there's so many where he's got such great vocals. Um, I think Nothing Was Delivered, as you say, is a tremendous performance. But yeah, going to Acapulco, it's shiver down the spine moment every time. So yeah. if you say Bob Dylan can't sing, dig that one out. I think so. I also think This Wheel's on Fire, actually. Um, I think his vocal's very strong on that, to be honest. Um, maybe not as strong as, uh, as on Going to Acapulco, but I mean, that's a, that's a great song. Um, and I mean, well known, obviously, for various cover versions. And it was used on, oh God, it was a theme tune to something in the 90s, wasn't it? I forget. Absolutely fabulous. Was it? Oh God, right. Okay. <laughs> so I'm sure I remember someone playing it when I was at uni and uh, 
the the basement tapes version of it and someone said oh yeah yeah i know this it's on the telly isn't it it's uh, yeah so but i mean this wheels on fire again actually while we're on it 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 ties in with the it's it ties in it ties in with the kind of the lear-esque kind of apocalyptic uh sort of sort of tone i mean there's that one bit in king lear when he's kind of awakened from his you know death-like kind of slumber and state and you've got him talking about being bound upon a wheel of fire I mean, I'm not obviously kind of accusing Bob Dylan of plagiarism because if we did that, then we'd be with plenty of, of, of things that we could talk about. But I mean, it's what he does with it, isn't it? It's what he does, what he takes from that seemingly the, the inspiration of that play and what he kind of turns that into and then uses the band to turn it into. It's, it's, it's incredible. Well, I think, Rich, we might be just about ready to hit uh, last thoughts. But I did have a, a hospital pass of a question to fire at you before we got there. Okay. So in Sid Griffin's book, Million Dollar Bash, he does put it out there that he thinks that the trilogy, if you want to put it like that, of London Blonde, The Basement Tapes, and John Wesley Harding might be an even bolder trilogy, in his words, than Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61, and Blonde on Blonde. And it just got me thinking, it's such a strange way of, of grouping those records, which I think I've never seen anyone else do. But I wondered what you think about that. I think you might have a point. They're, they're three incredibly strong records and they, they hang together, I think. Do you know what? I think, I think they probably do. I think that this is a reminder, really, of, of anyone that's got a body of work that's so big, like Bob Dylan has. You can probably take albums from various points in his kind of canon and, and you could make a, a trilogy out of them. But I think that, perhaps thematically they probably work as well as the kind of golden trilogy that we're all familiar with really um i'd never thought of that before but yeah i, I think he, he could have a point i mean <laughs> i might have to write a few essays about it before <laughs> proper answer what do you reckon I think, you- well i i think it's a really interesting observation to make and i think what it does do for me is it puts the final nail in the coffin of that classic trilogy I mean, we did we did talk. <laughs> I should hasten to add, not in terms of the quality of the records, but, um, <laughs> in terms of conceptualising them as a trilogy. We talked before, didn't we, about how we think that bringing it all back home is probably closer to another side, and how Blonde on Blonde sits outside the other two. Really, if it's it's closer to Highway 61 than bringing it all back home, but, but it's something different again. And I think thinking about it, thinking about Blonde on Blonde in relation to the Basement Tapes and John Wesley Harding, just makes you realise that actually these sorts of things are pretty meaningless and that there wasn't a, a trilogy in the mid-60s in any meaningful way other than they were all bloody fantastic. Yeah. Well, Rich, I think that brings us pretty nicely to last thoughts on the basement tapes. Uh, so do you want to dive in first? Yeah, I mean, I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to this one. I actually think that, I think the idea of this album, I still love even more than the album itself, but I really like the album now. Um, and you can see it's been so, so influential. I mean, I think that the sort of, the band were kickstarted by this. I think that the roots of Sweetheart of the Rodeo probably are within this as well. And I mean, cause of course the songs featured on that anyway, from the basement tapes. Um, and I think that within the entire Americana genre, I think this is, this is almost like the blueprint, as I've said already. So I think it's great. Um, I love the romance of it. I love the idea of it. And, and I think it's, yeah, I, I do. I love it as an album. I think it's fantastic. It's really interesting as well, of course, the fact that there's so many links with King Lear. It's quite gratifying. I mean, this, there had to be one album, at least along the way, where it was really kind of, yep, yeah, there's definite links here. But uh, this, this is the one that's, that I think is, uh, they'd be more prevalent than any others. Yeah, all relentlessly positive really without wanting to sound kind of uh, like I'm overdoing it what about you mate what's what's your sort of final thoughts on this yeah I, I I agree it's a tremendous listen still now and it's it's one of those for me that I've gone back to time and time again over 30 years pretty much like blood on the tracks that we've we've just done and, and like desire that's coming up next um, and it's endlessly rewarding in its own way I suppose the one thing that I wanted to pick up just to wrap things up from my point of view is that we we often think of this album as the, the you know the lost record uh, it's romanticized in that way as you've as you've just said 
And we think of it as you've also just described as the, the album that coalesces the band as this uh, group of musicians that are going to become something special in their own right. And I think that's how we tend to look back on this record now. And in a weird way, we overlook the fact that it's arguably the high point, the high watermark of Bob Dylan's creativity, which is saying a lot. <laughs> but when you think about the songs that he wrote in 1967, yeah. that he recorded, uh, some of the performances that we've talked about, even the ones that survive on the 24 record set, never mind all the rest that we know about. We're talking here about being in the room with a tape recorder where probably the greatest artist of the 20th century is at the very top of his game. And this is what we get to hear about it, which is pretty special. And I think that's what I realized this time. Yes, we've got the, the romanticism. Yes, we've got the band. That's all fantastic. But actually, this is Bob Dylan at the top of his game. And we shouldn't forget that. That's very well put. Okay, well, I've, I've got nothing to, to kind of add to that other than, uh, yeah, I totally agree. Thank you ever so much for joining us, as always. Please do, if you have any questions or any comments that you want to make, look for us on Twitter, search at Dylan American. And we will look forward to joining you next time when we will be discussing desire. Thank you. Thank you.